The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. We are in the final part of stage one. Seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. The essence of the Savior's summons to satisfaction. In chapter 2, 5 through 15, the first reason for seeking the Lord was given. It's because of the state and fate of everyone that surrounded Judah. And now we focus in on the state and fate of Judah itself. And it begins where chapter three verse chapter two verse five began with woe. Woe, there is deep grief in the prophet's heart. Prophets are seers. That was what they were originally called before they were ever called prophets. Seers are those who can they were called this because they could see into the future. That's what we think about when we think about a prophet. He's a he's a foreteller about God's purposes in the future. But he was also a seer into the present. That is, he had eyes to see what was real. In the late 90s, there was a movie called The Matrix. The Matrix was a computer-generated world. And most of the people in this world had their brains simply plugged into the computer. And they thought they were real. They thought they were seeing reality. There were a few folks who had their brains unplugged, and they knew the truth. And as those who had been awakened to the truth, they were actually able to replug themselves back into the computer, but go in with having eyes to see. So the world, to most of those who were plugged into the system, who were being controlled by an outside force, who were blind to real reality of the darkness and the depth of pain that was all around the world, to them, it was like they had rose-colored glasses and everything was fine. Everything was going normal, day in and day out. But to those who had been unplugged, who had eyes to see, they saw the absolute control that the enemy had 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 on the world, the sway that the enemy had on the world. And their goal was to unplug as many minds as possible, to see reality for what it was, dark, broken, controlled by an enemy force. It's an apt analogy for Zephaniah's world. A bunch of people living day in and day out, thinking all is fine. As it said back in chapter 1, verse 12, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. I can act how I will. I can be as apathetic as I want to be, as lazy as I want to be. I can engage in sin as much as I want. I can look at the things that I want to look at. I can talk the way that I want to talk. I can live my way. And God is distant. But Zephaniah could see that there was something greater. The greater reality was that 
God controlled everything. In the west and in the east. In the south and in the north. He was sovereign over all things. Judah sat in the center of the world. And the divine judge was encroaching. He came to the Philistines. He came to Moab and Ammon. He came to Cush. And he was coming all the way north to Assyria. He was near, not far. This God who was bringing judgment all around was right in the midst of Judah. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Deep grief in the heart of the prophet. Woe, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Who is this? The oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges, evening wolves that leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The oppressors are within her. Verse 3. But the other one who is within her is the Lord. The Lord is within her. And He is righteous. Passionate to preserve and display right order in His world, wherein He will be shown supreme. Magnified for who He is. God is not small, nor is He distant. He's not like a tiny piece of sand that you might take up to a microscope in order to see its beauty. No, He is like a distant moon that when you put the telescope on Him, all of a sudden He is shown more glorious than we could see with our eye. But He is much bigger than any moon in the world. Much more vast than any other power in the air. And the call is to magnify His righteousness. That is to get in line with Him, being as passionate as He is to preserve and display right order wherein He is in charge. Wherein we value His image in others and don't seek to push it down or push it aside. Our love for God moves us because of the way that we value His image being displayed in other people. It moves us to love other people. Pastor John has aptly and rightly said, abortion is about God. Because what's at stake is His image in a little life, a capacity to to display His greatness, to reflect His wonderfulness. To represent Him in the world that's bound up in every human in a way that it's not bound up in any beast or in any tree. How we treat other people matters because God matters. And there is not one person in the world without 
value because there is not one person in the world who does not display God. And how you treat other people, how you respond to your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you respect your boss, all of it matters because God is over all. How much do we value our God? We can't say, I value you with one breath and then treat someone like they are worthless. Notice verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, oppressing. The oppressing city. The her here in chapter 3, 1 is a little ambiguous at this point. Zephaniah has been going rapid fire through all these peoples around Jerusalem, and the question is, well, who is he talking about here? The woe in 3.1 parallels the woe in 2.5 and suggests that he's adding something beyond where he had gone before. So he's surrounded Israel in the west, the Philistines, the east, Moab and Edom, or Ammon, in the south, the major superpower of Cush overseeing Egypt, and in the north, Assyria, he surrounded them with a compass of judgment, and then he goes, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. And I can see them saying, who's he talking about now? Who's this people? But it doesn't take long as we begin to work our way through They can't look outside anymore. He's talking about them. In words that echo, for example, chapter 2, verse 15, Assyria's Nineveh is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. So if they're the exultant city in the north, now who's the oppressing city? Is it Nineveh? No, he's, he's turned the tables on them. Because this oppressing city is the one of whom it can be said in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. And God in His purposes chose one plot of land in the ancient world, one plot of land called Canaan to make it His own, and one piece of land within Canaan as an echo of the Garden of Eden, this promised land wherein He would Reside where he would walk with Israel, as it were, just like he had walked with Adam and Eve. He would walk with them there. He would be their God. They would be his people. That place was Jerusalem. This is where God's emanating presence was supposed to be going forth as people would come and see his beauty, declare his worth, reflect his character in their lives. All of a sudden, his name would go forth and people would say, you're different. That was the ideal, and it wasn't happening. What was happening was oppression. When we listen 
and receive correction, when we listen to an authority and receive correction, it reflects the worth of that voice. It identifies that voice as significant. It, it upholds the authority of that voice. But to the level that we don't listen and don't receive correction, we minimize the worth and the value and the significance of the one who's talking. I, I look at, chap, at verse 2 and I see two things. Resistance and unresponsiveness. Where do we see that show up in our own homes? How do you see it in your kids? We don't have to think about ourselves. Let's just think about our kids. Where do you see Those from whom the worth and value and authority of God is supposed to be being displayed in their lives. Instead, what we get is she listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. Let's look at the resistant part first. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. You don't have to teach a kid to say no. It's, yeah, it's interesting how it's so natural. I've got six, and they can go after each other. Usually they just delight in each other, but they can go after each other. And when does it happen most often? When one would say no to another. Is it when that person is enjoying their own toy? Probably not. There's, there's, there's more going on here, I think. I, in light of where verses 3 and 4 go, there's, and in ver, light of verse 1... Um, The voices and the correction um, are coming from God, it appears, and there's a resistance. A failure to hunger, a failure to thirst for what is right. Um, A failure to surrender. This drawing near verb is used throughout the Old Testament in sacrificial contexts. And back in chapter 1, verse 7, we saw that the day of the Lord is being portrayed as a sacrifice, and everyone is part of that sacrifice. And here it says she does not draw near to her God. And it, it suggests to me that there is um, 
some kind of a deep-seated failure to actually see a need for substitution. The, the drawing near in the Old Testament is a drawing near that's done through blood, through, through a beast standing in my stead, and they're not interested in that. Have you ever had a resistant child to correction? One who, they're disciplined and they don't turn. Their heart remains hard and cold. It grieves me as a dad. Sometimes I don't know how to get in. And here the word of the God is saying, she's not listening, she's not receiving correction. She's not trusting that my way is best. She's not drawing near to her God. Any any reflections on verse 2? This is just fundamental, like, okay, a war is coming, let's go to basic training. Are you listening to God? Are you receiving Are you learning from his discipline? Are you trusting in him when he speaks? Do you you trust his word as God alone? Are you drawing near to him as a needy person in need of all that he offers? This This is just base level relationship with God. Any any reflections on verse two? One of the areas of oppression that happens when, you, when you're in a place of power, um, one of the ways that oppression can show its face is by coveting things that other people have and claiming them as your own. And at the core of coveting is a lack of trust in God that He is good to supply you with everything you need and you're wanting more. And in this oppressiveness, um, we already saw back in chapter 1, verse 9, the language of violence and fraud that was identified with the political and religious leaders. Violence and fraud. And then, um, in verse 11, the traitors are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off, suggesting that there was something about the way that they're weighing measures in the public square that was actually um, claiming things that were not their own. There's a greed that's here that is actually caring little about the worth of others and the needs of others and thinking only only of themselves. And as has already been noted, it, it seems to be being led by these leaders. The text just moves on there. Look at verses 3 and 4. Make some observations on verses 3 and 4. What do you see? Try to um, categorize what type of leaders are we talking about and, and what are they doing. The officials, that's a um, political term. The, the officials were the military and government leaders. The judges were those who were 
working cases, deciding on cases. So the political realm is corrupt and corrupt in abuse. It's roaring lions and evening wolves. They've, they're not imagers of God. They've become beastly. The language is very similar to what we see in the book of Daniel where the kings of the earth are portrayed as beasts. Lion, eagle, leopard, bull. And they're beastly. And then you, they're in contrast to the Son of Man who's the ultimate imager of what humanity was supposed to be. And here, these leaders are being portrayed in a comparable way. They've, they're, they're not imaging God as humans are supposed to do, passionate to preserve and display right order in the world, where God is supreme and where His image in others is valued. They are oppressive, hungry, hungry to devour whoever they can, That's the officials. And then the judges, evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. They're working in the dark and they're trying to clean up so that there's not even any sign of their violence. It's all gone. They've totally consumed everything. We move from these political realm into the religious realm. What do you read about the prophets and the priests? Okay. Treacherous and arrogant. That's the fickleness. And most likely, they keep changing their minds because they're able to be bought. They're not speaking the words of God. They are becoming yes-men for the greatest dollar or for the greatest hearing. And then the priest, the very role of the priest was to distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean, and to teach the very statutes of God to the people. They were the primary instructors. They're the pastors, right? They're the ones who are standing before the people. Levites placed in every tribe. The Levites don't have their own tribal allotment because all the other tribes need pastors, And these very priests are profaning what is holy. That is to treat what is holy as if it were not holy. Acting as though what is precious is not truly precious. All that God is, I can simply push it aside. Whether it's bound up in His Word or whether it's His image in others. I can just push it aside, profane what is holy, and do violence to the law. The very gift of God to guide. In Deuteronomy 4, all the nations, we're told, would look at Israel. If they would but keep the statutes and the rules, all the nations would look in and say, Oh, what a wise and understanding people you are. But instead... They're not displaying the worth and the truth and the beauty of God and the way that He makes things right that just fit right. No, the priests are twisting it all. And in the process, making little of God. I I was grieved this week on two fronts. 
Um, as I reflected on this text, on the one front, I have um, a number of friends who have positions of authority with respect to God's Word. And they are using, and I fear uh, doing it in order to get an ear-tickling hearing, they are, they are approaching the Word of God and maligning it, calling it, for example, Genesis 1-11, through 11, does not give us real history. It's, it's just fiction. It's made-up story. It can't be true. Science tells us we didn't come from one man. Science tells us that the, a global flood is impossible. And their, their authority has been altered. They have a different authority that's influencing them. But there, there's something driving them And they're failing to recognize that there are men and women all over the world who are putting their lives on the line for a trustworthy book. And they're just playing games. Another lady that I went to to graduate school with, driven initially by a feminist agenda, has now written a book that is that is having massive influence, her, her drive to initially bring equality to men and women without distinctions between biological sex and gender. Seeing no distinctions, that move has taken her all the way to the point of affirming the reality of gender identity, that people can just choose whatever gender identity they want, and that Genesis 1 doesn't teach male and female, he created them. And she's a theologian. She has her PhD and she's, she's gaining a big hearing. And it grieves me because I'm seeing reproduced what happened in Israel and judgment will come. So if the shepherd was being followed, there'd be more safety. It, I, I think... That's, that's on Zephaniah's mind in, in the way that he shapes verse 5. Her officials within her are roaring lions, but the Lord within her is righteous. He's the one who's going to bring justice globally. He's the one that's going to put an end to ISIS. He's the one who's going to put an end to all forms of evil, internal and external. In fact, he's doing it. The Lord within her is righteous. That is, He's passionate for right order. And it's on the move. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is being made public. Every time orphan status is overcome, The gospel of God, the curse-overcoming power of God is on the move. Every time a believer sees a need and reaches in to meet it and sees that cursed oppression overcome, the gospel of God is on the move. 
The gospel is advancing in in massively difficult places because God is righteous and every morning He shows forth justice. Plead with God that that justice, that He is working in pockets in the world, will come public in your life where you feel the oppression, where you feel the darkness. God, you who are working not only mercy every morning, but justice every morning, work it for me. Plead for it. And then also this. Recognize that if you experience mercy, that is the flip side of the fact that the justice has been worked for you that morning. That at the cross, the just God sent wrath against His Son so that when you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse you, purify you from all unrighteousness, to make you a better dad, make you a better mom, make you a better worker who identifies need and reaches out to meet it, who begins to magnify the magnificence of God. Not like a little piece of sand in a microscope, but like a distant moon in a telescope. You begin to make big for the world the one who is massive in the way that you love and value His image, even in people that are hard to love. You go counter to the flow of the river, the flow of the stream that's just rising increasingly. We feel it, the darkness moving, moving, moving against all that is good, all that is pure, all that is true. And you begin to stand with God with you. I was pondering this morning before I got up here about the Lord within her is righteous. Why is He in this text? Why is He within her? He's within Jerusalem because He resided in the temple. And the impurities got so great within Jerusalem that finally God just had to leave. In Ezekiel 8-11, through we see His presence lift up and He leaves this temple. And He doesn't return until... The Word that was in the beginning became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. Full of grace. Full of truth. And now we in Him, this God is is within us. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. So glorify God in your body. We as these moving temples designed to image His character, magnify His greatness, and to identify His image in others and therefore consider people valuable. This is part of the call of the text. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice. With every sunrise, remember the day has dawned. The light has dawned. The darkness is passing away. The light of the world has come. It's not noon yet. But the very fact that the sun has risen means that noon is coming. And when it arrives, it will never end.
So there's a contrast here between the Lord who's within her and the unjust one who knows no shame. The oppressor versus God. And God will clean house and wipe away all oppression in due time. He's already started, says Zephaniah in verse 6. I've cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. What was it about the destruction of those around Israel that was supposed to move them to fear God? How, what's the logic of, this, of these two verses? Okay. So there's a history of God overcoming their enemies. What else? It's very easy to get caught up in our own present-day giants that we, we get so caught up at the darkness that's looming in front of us. ISIS, for example. And all we have to do is just step back and say, okay, this isn't the first giant to hit the earth. Let's just overview the last hundred years. And consider the massive giants that God has put down. Mao's destruction in China was much greater even than Hitler's. And God brought it to an end. Every major force God has brought down. And He will bring this down too. No, this appears to be, he's declaring that this is, this is what has already happened. He's surrounded by injustice and it's flourishing. But, just turn back with me to verse 15 of chapter 2. It's very clear when we look at verse 13, the, it, the destruction of Nineveh is future It hasn't come yet. We're roughly around 622, and Nineveh doesn't fall till 612. He will stretch out his hand against the north, and he will make Nineveh a desolation. But when you get down to verse 15, what a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. The verb actually changes there. It happens three times in this book. The other time was in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. That, I I wish the ESV would have just, I, I understand where they were going, but it actually switches the verb form to a past tense. The Lord has been awesome against them. He has famished all the gods of the earth. That's what it it actually says. And yet it hasn't happened. And so what I'm seeing him declare is is the absolute certainty of that future destruction. And when we read this book, we see, okay, Jerusalem's going down. All the nations that surround Israel are going down. Indeed, 118, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. And as the fires of God in judgment, came upon Jerusalem in 586 under the hand of Babylon, the question in the mind could have been, is this it? It is for me. 
It is for us, but is it the ultimate it for everyone who's rebellious against God? And time pointed to the fact that no, it wasn't it. This is not the first day of the Lord experience. Isaiah talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. It was pinpointed for Assyria. It was pinpointed for Babylon. It was pinpointed for Israel. And that day of the Lord becomes a, a picture, every one. But, but every audience would have thought this could be it. And it was for them. Just like the Canaanites, that was the, the day of the Lord for them. And in Jesus then, He comes in and takes that big daddy tribulation, the great tribulation, and bears it in His own body. He experiences the wrath of God for all the elect. And in doing so, the future intrudes into the present And with that comes new creation. We're going to see that next week. It's so beautiful as we move into wait for the Lord in order to enjoy satisfaction. But I think for Zephaniah, he's thinking in his mind, he has this big image of the day of the Lord, and he may not be able to... He's like a... uh, he's, He's like a man standing right here. Looking at mountain ranges. And when he's looking, it's actually difficult to assess which mountain peak is closest and which one is furthest. You and I experience that downtown when we're standing on the third floor looking out on the cityscape. There's some buildings that are bigger but are actually further away, but there's a question, which building is closer as we're looking at it? What happens for us living further along in redemptive history? The prophet had this, and he's just saying, this is the day of the Lord. But whether it's going to happen here or here, we're not sure. But we, we get a, a little bit of a clearer perspective up here. At least in the fact that we know that 586 came... And there was still more future judgments in mind. We know that Jesus came. And we know that He inaugurated a year of the Lord's favor as we await the day of the vengeance of our God. The range is is right in front of Him. And this, this is kind of the, if I was, this could be like the culminating peak at one level. And yet, there's even more, I mean, there's, there's so many more, uh, This is the ultimate day of the Lord that will come in massive power when Christ returns. And in that moment, then everything will will be put down. But He's still raising up nations and lowering nations, even to this day. He's still bringing ends to powers and the kingdoms of man. But already, a definitive judgment has come on the person of the Son. And with that, Hope has come. The righteousness of God has intruded and He has begun to work right order in a very distinctive way. When we see others caught in their sin, it's supposed to tell us how foolishness sin is. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. You've seen the significance of judgment all around. Surely you're going to take notice of it. But they were hard. 
God grant us eyes to see. To take sin seriously. And to recognize that if our own sin hasn't found us out yet, that is a, an experience of the mercy and forbearance of our God that is supposed to lead us to repentance rather than create more hardness. God is righteous. And He's not only in Jerusalem then, He's in us now. And the call is for us to magnify like a telescope does a distant moon. To take that which is absolutely great, but the world can't see God for all that He is. But He wants to put Himself on display in us. So magnify His worth. Magnify His character. And then identify His image in others and embrace it and celebrate it rather than hurting it and harming it. Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. The disciplining hand of God. I I wish we could look more at that. We can learn from discipline or we can not learn from it. And the call is to be those who learn from it. Let's pray. Father God, you take sin seriously. And amazingly, before the judgment was brought on Judah, you reminded them that you took sin seriously. And you're reminding us now. Help us grieve over sin. Help us truly want to seek righteousness first that we might magnify You, making much of You. Help us do what's right with You guiding our lives. And then, Lord, help us value Your image in others. Help us as dads and husbands. Help us as moms and wives. As women of friends. As men with friends. Help us in our interactions to put you on display the way that we're supposed to, to show that you're our king and that we're not living for ourselves. Help us, Lord, I pray in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.